This is Epicenter, episode 406, with guest Dominic Williams. Welcome to Epicenter, the podcast where we interview crypto founders, builders and thought leaders. I'm Friederike Ernst and I'm here with Martin Köppelmann as a special guest co-host. Today we're speaking with Dominic Williams, chief scientist and founder of Definity. Definity builds the internet computer, a layer one smart contract enabled blockchain that achieves remarkable scaling properties. The way that the internet computer does that is through native sharding. They call it somewhat differently, but uh, that's basically what it is. The compromise they end up making is that the security guarantees are not as strong as on Bitcoin or Ethereum, requiring um, some trust in a majority of validators. But before we talk with Dominic about Definity, let me tell you about our sponsor this week. Gnosis Safe is a smart wallet for securely managing digital assets. What makes Gnosis Safe different is that it allows you to define customized access permissions. Digital assets on Web3 are usually controlled by a single private key, posing a challenge as private keys may get lost or compromised. On top of that, users are forced to trust individuals holding single private keys to govern highly valuable digital assets and protocols. Gnosis Safe enables users to control digital assets with much more granular permissions, involving multiple private keys, a subset of which is required for executing transactions. These keys can then be stored on different hardware or software wallets or even shared across multiple people. Additionally, Custom permission modules can be added to enable even more use cases, such as setting transfer allowances for individual keys or automatically executing transactions decided on by a snapshot community vote. Gnosis Safe's extra layer of security and personalization makes it the most trusted Web3 asset management solution for individuals, teams, and DAOs who already use it to store more than 57 billion US dollars worth of fungible digital assets, so that's Ether and ERC-20 tokens. Additionally, it can also store and manage NFTs. On top of that, Gnosis Safe also provides a lot of opportunities for de developers to plug into the platform. Developers can extend the Gnosis Safe interface with their own dApps and even build additional permission modules. The ecosystem of Safe apps and the custom modules extends the usability of Gnosis Safe as a portal to DeFi, financial tooling, organizational management, and beyond. Visit gnosis-safe.io to learn more and get started um, with setting up your own Safe. Dominic, you are the founder of Definity, and you have been on this podcast before. I looked it up and it was almost five years ago. So it's super good to actually have you back. I think seeing that it, it's been quite a while, I think it would warrant to have a fresh introduction on you. So Dominic Williams, who are you? Well, firstly, it's, it's very good to be back. Uh, I think it's just over four and a half years since I was last on your show. And, you know, I'm working on exactly the same thing today that I was then. Um, back then, it was just called Affinity. Um, Today, the network is called the Internet Computer, and the foundation is still called Affinity. And of course, Affinity stands for Decentralized Infinity. You just, you know, remove some letters and stick them together, and you get the word Affinity. And the objective, which was really first formulated in 2015, 
was to really implement this idea of a world computer, a blockchain that would be fast and have infinite capacity, um, or, or at least um, its capacity could be scaled without limit as, as needed. And, um, you know, that's what we produced. It was, a, you know, a, a tough job. It took many years, uh, probably in truth, several years more than I expected. But, um, you know, I'm pleased to say we're three months into the um, fully operational public internet computer blockchain network, and it's, it's going very well. So, I mean, it's, it's been quite a while. So what, what was so challenging about it? Well, I mean, there's another way of looking at that, right, which is why do no other blockchains scale as yet, even though everyone recognizes that it's desirable to scale um, the capacity for smart contracts. But to date, nobody can scale smart contracts. Um, blockchains are slow and inefficient. And there are some other things that the internet computer can do that, that other networks can't, can't match yet, such as um, serving interactive web content. So smart contracts on the internet computer can actually service HTTP calls, which gives you an you know a measure of the enormous progress that's been made. Um, and to deliver something like this, um, you 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 have to rethink blockchain architecture and blockchain science um, from the ground up, and you also actually have to develop a lot of novel cryptography. So you can't, you know, just go into the existing cryptography toolbox and say, I'll take this and that and plug them all together and um, produce the internet computer. You actually have to develop novel cryptography. And if you want to do that, you have to, you know, build a team of um, eminent cryptographers and you know, who, who can create the math. And you have to find engineers who are capable of implementing you know, the complex schemes they produce and so on. So even, even building you know, a research and development organization capable of implementing this kind of thing takes years. Um, but you also, of course, have to have, have done the research and development too. And so that's why why it's taken so long. So maybe let's talk about what Definity set out to do. So let's talk about what you mean when you say internet computer and uh, what's, what's wrong with the internet as it is and what's wrong with Web3. Well, it's not there's anything wrong with it. it it's just that you know we believe there's a lot more potential that block blockchain can unlock so i i believe in this thing called blockchain singularity and um you know i i guess i sort of started out on this path back in 2014 you know um, when i heard the expression world computer from ethereum folks and uh, wow you know wouldn't it be fantastic if there really was a world computer and everyone could build everything on it. And, um, you know, it inspired me a great deal. And then on top of that, you know, I, I began to think very hard about the nature of smart contracts. And I came to the conclusion that smart contracts are, in fact, a very new, very novel, and massively superior form of software. And I realized that given the advantages of smart contracts, if you could remove the limitations of their implementations at the time and, and today outside of the internet computer, then eventually everything would be rebuilt and reimagined using smart contracts and run entirely from a blockchain. So, um, you know, I decided to make it my mission to implement this world computer and not, not something, you know, I mean, 
like Ethereum is today, which can do sort of a handful of transactions a second, but um, a real world computer that can handle, you know, if necessary, billions of transactions a second, um, can run efficiently, um, run quickly, scale its capacity, um, upon which we could re-implement absolutely everything. And that's what I mean by blockchain singularity. So if you um, think about smart contracts for a moment, outside of the context of legacy blockchains, which are very limited, um, first of all, of course, smart contract software runs on a an open public network, which in itself is an advantage, actually. Um, much better to run on, on a public network than on Amazon Web Services or Google or Microsoft Azure or wherever it is, and, um, you become a captive customer. So that's the first advantage. But there are e even more powerful advantages. Um, smart contracts are tamper-proof. You can't hack a smart contract. Well, you can hack a smart contract, but it will always run as written. Okay? Smart contract gives you the guarantee that the logic that you've created will always run against the correct data. Um, and of course, you can't. Uh, encrypt a smart contract with ransomware. So this is going to become increasingly important um, because traditional IT is is in the process of a rolling meltdown. You you can't make it secure, you know. Um, and we've seen problems, for example, in recent months, the Colonial Pipeline hack in America cut off the east coast of America, uh, America's uh, oil supply, um, the, the gas refineries ran dry, and there were these huge thousand car tailbacks with mothers with young children um, sitting in, in line trying to get some gas for their car. Um, that was the, the result of, you know, the pipeline companies, um, server machines um, being infected with ransomware and and, and, and encrypted. And, ex and, and eventually they were released after some weeks in exchange for a Bitcoin ransom. There was a SolarWinds hack. In, in that hack, pretty much Worldwide, every imaginable form of confidential content was stolen and put in the hands of hackers on an absolutely vast scale. So there's this rolling meltdown in, in security, and it just gets worse and worse. And inevitably, the only way around that is to move to um, blockchain, where you can build with smart contracts, which are tamper-proof. Um, because traditional IT, whenever you build something, it always starts off completely insecure. You know, you start off with a web server and a database and a this and a that. And then, you know, you try and make it more secure by surrounding it by firewalls and having a security team. But that's the wrong way around. You, if, you, if you start off with insecure systems and you try and make them secure, sooner or later something will go wrong and, and the, the hacker will get in and um, encrypt all your systems with ransomware or steal your content. So tamper-proof. Of course, um, smart contracts are unstoppable. I mean, the Internet was designed to withstand a nuclear strike. The Internet computer blockchain um, is also designed to withstand a nuclear strike. So that's a fantastic property. Um, the other one people miss, which I think is probably the, perhaps the biggest, is smart contracts are composable. So every smart contract can, can plug into every other smart contract, which creates immense network effects. And a smart contract is both static software and dynamic software. So smart contract, if you like, is is is, is static software like the word.exe file that you see on your C drive. But it's also the running word program in which you're editing a document. It's both of these things simultaneously. And what that means is you can assemble running systems in the same way that you used to assemble static software. So in the same way that you build software, uh, static software from software libraries, you can now assemble 
compose running systems in the same way. And every smart contract can connect to every other smart contract. And a smart contract can be part of multiple systems at once. So this is a simply immense advantage. Let me jump in. So I, uh, I think the listeners of our podcast are completely convinced uh, of, uh, of the usefulness uh, of smart contracts. And I think uh, also Ethereum well, has demonstrated that um, there are people willing to pay millions a day for the use of smart contracts. Uh, and obviously, if, uh, well, obviously currently it, it is extremely expensive uh, on Ethereum uh, to use it and only really kind of a handful of people can actually use those smart contracts. So if you can say, well, we can bring those advantages uh, to everyone and kind of scale it uh, enormously, the, the advantage is, is, is obvious. So I'm really looking forward to now <laughs> jump into uh, yeah, kind of the technical uh, deep dive and uh, figure out well how, how you achieve those. As, as you said earlier, things that uh, lots of other chains are, have tried to do and uh, so far um, no one has achieved. So maybe to put things um, into perspective, at least where, where I, I'm coming from, uh, and I think mo many listeners are familiar with um, three other chains that uh, Ethereum, Polkadot, and Cosmos. And kind of my mental model of it is you have Ethereum with the idea of uh, shared security um, and then homogeneous uh, execution environments. And well, we are not fully there yet, but you could see, well, there would be the sharding and every shard would run the EVM, but uh, they are all kind of, uh, yeah, homogeneous. Then you have something like Polkadot, where you say, okay, you have also shared security, you have something like a, well, they don't, they call it different, but conceptually it's similar to a beacon chain, but then you have heterogeneous execution environments and the uh, execution environments, yeah, can have their own rules. They, they don't need to be all something like an EVM. They, they could have different rules. And then finally you have Cosmos, which says, okay, there are kind of sovereign blockchains and they, there's a light communication protocol between those, those blockchains. So, in that perspective, uh, where does the internet computer fit? So do we have, uh, first, do we have a shared security? Do we have, um, what are the execution environments? Can you compare it in, in this way of thinking? Yeah, so, um, you know, um, the internet computer, of course, shares some similarities. It has a virtual machine um, within which small contracts run, but, um, it, it's different in many ways. And actually, um, the differences are necessary. Um, and, you know, it's interesting looking at, um, you know, ex the, the scaling efforts of many existing blockchains, because you realize that the path, the paths they're pursuing won't lead them to the destination they want to reach. So I'll give you some simple, easily to easily understood examples. Um, one is, um, that if you want to create a blockchain that can scale smart contracts, the smart contracts need to be asynchronous. Okay. Which essentially means that, you know, you know, if I'm a smart contract and Martin's a smart contract, when my code wants to call Martin's code, it essentially packages the function call in a message, which of course is a kind of transaction and files that. And, this gets sent across the network because it, you know, the internet computers are a blockchain of blockchains. And we'll get back to how that works securely. It's very different to uh, other systems with similar visions. And, you know, Martin's smart contract will process the function call and uh, produce a result. And that will be 
um, send back. And, you know, when that function result is received by my smart contract, if you like, it's woken up and it processes it. Um, but at any one time, my code can have several of these calls to other um, smart contracts outstanding. So actually, the, the, this has some um, other benefits. I mean, just worth, worth mentioning before going into the details of parallelism. But the um, w- one of the big benefits of this is there's no reentrancy. And reentrancy is, in my view, um, one of the greatest um, uh, security vulnerabilities that uh, Ethereum smart contracts have to deal with. So we all know what happened with the, the DAO in 2016. That was exploited by a reentrancy bug. And they can be very subtle and difficult to deal with. My conception is, of, uh, of it is, of course, there needs to be at some layer a, a synchronicity. Um, I mean, that, that's otherwise it's 100% clear that it won't scale. There's no question about it. The question is, on what layer do you introduce this asynchronicity? So, uh, and, and for example, uh, Cosmos would say, well, within one chain, there are synchronous, synchronous calls possible, but between the chains, of course, the communication is asynchronous uh, and, and potentially same with, with Ethereum eventually that you have those uh, shards and within a shard, you can have uh, synchronous communication. Uh, so you are saying you are pushing you are pushing the um, the asynchronicity uh, on a smart contract level, or you call it canister, right? Of course, yes. Well, we call yeah uh, canister smart contracts, and um, if, if, for the listeners, the reason we call um, or nickname our smart contracts canisters is that each smart contract implements the software actor model and is in fact a bundle of WebAssembly bytecode and pages of memory that are exclusive to that smart contract. And because, you know, each smart contract is a bundle of uh, WebAssembly bytecode and memory pages, we we call it a canister. Um, But look, uh, you know, you you absolutely have to implement this at the um, level of the smart contracts. And um, the, the, key property um, that you need to implement a blockchain is is just determinism. And the reason people today um, have synchronous smart contract models is nothing to do with it being better. It's to do with it being complex to create determinism when you introduce a synchrony. That's the truth of it. So, you know, if you look at an internet computer subnet blockchain, which I suppose are in some ways very, very approximately equivalent to an Ethereum shard, but they're more sophisticated. They are, you know, the, the, the replicas, the nodes are processing numerous smart contract computations in parallel, but they're doing it in a deterministic way. So at the moment, we have a relatively simple system that relies upon introducing determinism in the order of messages shuffled um, back and forth between the different smart contracts as they run their computations. But we'll move to full deterministic time slicing in the future for a bunch of reasons to maximize the performance and efficiency um, of our nodes. And then when one subnet block, you know, when a, when one subnet blockchain um, hosts, you know, a smart contract A and it wants to send a message to, uh, you know, a smart contract B on another subnet blockchain, um, of course, uh, that message goes into a serialized um, queue between the subnets. And, you know, uh, the network provides the guarantee that if you make a call to another smart contract, you always get the 
response. So um, I should just be clear to the listeners as well. When I talk about messages, I'm talking about the network at a lower level here. I mean, a, a smart contract just sees function calls and function call results. I, I think I, I only heard it between the lines, but maybe uh, to make it explicit, it sounds like you're also, <laughs> that's a very useful thing, I have a separation between Uh, contract execution and kind of a transaction ordering. So on 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 some level, you, use, you mentioned there's a determinism achieved on a subnet that uh, says kind of exactly what is the transaction yeah, so ordering. I, I and then... how, yeah, I don't know how technical you want me to get, but the um, there's a sort of each you know node replica or you know in, in old, old style speak client software is implemented in four layers. At the bottom, there's uh, P2P. Then there's a sort of stateless protocol layer. We call it the consensus layer, but it actually does lots of different protocols. Then there's a message routing layer. And then above the message routing layer, you've got the execution environment. And that's where you'll find the uh, WASM virtual machine and all of the other stuff that creates the execution environment. Um, so the message routing layer, of course, can route messages to local smart contracts, i.e. smart contracts executing on the same subnet blockchain, or it can route them to other subnets. But yeah, of course, it's all deterministic, uh, has to be, it's a blockchain, and um, all done in ways that enable that kind of cryptographic verification that is essential to blockchain systems to be performed. Let's maybe carry on comparing it to Ethereum, which I, I assume the listeners are most uh, familiar with. So you already said that It's a WASM-based system, so basically each subnet has its own EVM, so to speak, or eWASM. Is that correct? And is there, is there a concept of gas? And yeah, uh, of course. So there's a lot of differences. So, so first of all, we you know we didn't try and um, use eWASM. It's uh, everything within the internet computer is new, and it's been designed for a specific purpose. And uh, you, you know, uh, as I mentioned, you know, if you want to create a blockchain that scales, your smart contracts have to be asynchronous and um you know therefore it wouldn't have been possible to you know reuse any existing virtual machine so uh yeah we do of course have a gas model there instead of it's not called gas it's called cycles um on the internet computer and we also use something called a reverse gas model so that means that the smart contracts pay for their own computation you know you charge you know it's like filling up a car right you know The car's burning the gas from its fuel tank, and when it runs out, it has to be filled up again. There's a number of reasons we do that, but I mean, most obviously, um, it uh, allows blockchain to approximate to a sort of cloud computing model um, and provide much better user experiences. So, for instance, you, know, you could look at um, you look at Open Chat. You know, Open Chat is a chat system that runs entirely from the internet computer blockchain, um, which. I think we'll give the, the, the listeners some measure of the differences here, right? So, you know, open chat is implemented using smart contracts. These smart contracts are efficient enough and run fast enough that they can actually move chat messages around. And these smart contracts also can serve HTTP requests. So they serve the interactive uh, user experience that loads, for example, into your browser window that enables you as a user to um, send and receive uh, uh, messages. Now, What's actually happening there is is you're authenticating yourself using this thing called Internet Identity. And whenever you interact with the backend smart contracts, they're paying for their own gas or here cycles. And, and you know, 
can you imagine if you were forced to use MetaMask? I mean, every time you wanted to send a transaction to send, you know, a, a, a chat message is a transaction, right? So every time you want to send a chat message, you'd have to sort of configure the signature and say how much gas you want to send with it. It just, just wouldn't work. It just doesn't work. So it doesn't, it doesn't work. Yeah, currently, currently, clearly, uh, Ethereum transactions are something that is probably, well, at least worth a thousand dollar. Otherwise, it's not <laughs> kind of doesn't That's make right. sense. Doesn't make sense yeah. to 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 use it because you will pay ten fifty dollar ten to fifty dollars transaction fees. And of course, if you want to do something as small as a chat message, uh, of course, the, the the model needs to be very different. So let me let me summarize. So, or at least make a all right, what we have so far. So we have subnets that are somewhat maybe comparable to shards, not exactly, but somewhat. Then they run on on Wasm. Uh, they have um, uh, they have um, canisters that are kind of similar to smart contracts, but already on that level we have the S and Christian So, uh, what is the buff? So, uh, apparent, I mean, I, I guess there needs to be something that that is holding um, uh, the subnets together. And how does communication uh, work on uh, between subnets? Well, um, so the one of the most important if not the most important innovation in the internet computer is this thing called uh, the, the chain key system. And that actually involves novel cryptography. And it, it's evolved from that or, original work that I used to talk about in 2015. You know, uh, I was using I remember uh, BLS, well. yeah, yeah to, to generate random numbers. You know, we just kept on burrowing down that, you know, along that furrow and it just became more and more advanced. And so let's just step back a moment and, and, think about some of the other challenges that you see with existing legacy blockchain architectures like Ethereum or proposed architectures like Ethereum 2.0 um, or hub and spoke architectures like Polkadot. So, you know, one of the issues, so, so you know, the, the, the Polkadot concept is that you have some central hub blockchain that charges toll fees and then everyone else creates their own blockchain, a parachain, plugs it in to the hub blockchain and it's made easy because they're all built in this thing called Substrate. And then they can send messages to each other, you know, via the hub. And obviously, you know, Gavin Wood sits there collecting the toll fees, basically. And, or, you know, um, so obviously, from my perspective, I'm very interested in the, this idea of a world computer. And, you know, if you, you don't really want a hub and spoke architecture if you want to create a world computer because you're going to create a bottleneck. Naturally, the hub is a bottleneck, right? So that's not a good way of going. And the same problem exists with Cosmos too. You don't want to have to, you know, forward all traffic through a hub. Well, why does the same why does the same uh, problem exist with the Cosmos? Because I mean, you can have uh, with the um, with IBC enabled um, chains, you can just have chain to chain communication, right? You don't need beacon chain or yeah. I, I think it was it was at some point proposed that it would go through the hub, but. Maybe that's changing. Maybe I, not. I'm not up to date. Maybe they've tried. Maybe they've seen the error of their ways and they're trying to get rid of the central hub. Um, yeah, I, I haven't been following those projects. But look, there's another problem as well, which is actually much worse than that. And it's that if everybody's creating their own blockchain, every blockchain will have a different trust model. So let's imagine, you know, Friedrich, you're you're the Polkadot hub. I'm a I'm a parachain, and Martin's a parachain, right? So I then there's a smart contract on me that wants to send a message to the smart contract on Martin. So, okay, so creates the message, sort of delivers it to you, Friedrich, the, the Polkadot Hub, and you, you know, I pay the toll fee. 
And then you take that message and you send it to Martin. And then hopefully Martin processes the message and sends it back to you, pays the fee, and then you forward it to me. Right Now, there are a number of problems with this. The first is that it's no longer a blockchain. We've got three different trust zones here. There's my trust zone, which is based upon, you know, whoever my, you know, validators are and what my staking system is and so on. There's, Frederick, you're the, the hub and that's another, the second trust zone. And then Martin is the third trust zone. And um, it's very, it becomes very difficult to reason about things, you know. So if the smart contract on me, you know, wants to call a smart contract on Martin, well, somehow the designer of that's got to be aware that um, perhaps the hub might fail, or well, at least they have to understand um, what what the mode of operation is for the hub. Um, can a message be delayed? Um, and then, you know, what about Martin? I don't know. I don't know anything about his trust zone. Does Martin guarantee that um, the message that I sent to his smart contract will um, generate a response? So this gets very, very difficult. Not only that, of course, that it gets, becomes very clunky for smart contract developers. You know, if there's a smart contract on me and it wants to call a smart contract on Martin, it should be very simple. It should just be, you know, I can create a define that says, you know, define this contract with the address of Martin's contract. And I should just be able to go this contract.call function, right? And process the result. I personally see I, I personally very much see this argument for Cosmos. I think Ethereum and Polkadot are trying to kind of have a shared security model, but uh, maybe switch yeah. to internet computers. So but how does it work about here? Coding, right? It's not just. I mean, this the security model. Uh, well, you know, the scalability is the first problem when you when you introduce a hub that doesn't work out too well. The security becomes a mess because you've got all these different trust zones, and then of course, worst of all, developers are faced with trying to deal with all these complexities themselves and sending messages around the function calls. Although, although again, here, again, here, I think we, to my, in my understanding, we have the two approaches with Ethereum that's trying to say, well, we always use EVM and kind of have a shared, um, uh, well, uh, homogeneous execution environment. Uh, it seems like you also are going for a homogeneous execution environment uh, while in Polkadot, they say, and of course, there are also arguments, I would say, for that, to say, well, different applications need different or might might benefit from different, um, yeah, something like but, uh, but, VMs. Yes, but, sure. but look, I mean, going back to, you know, the advantages of smart contracts and what got me into this in, in the first place, a key advantage of smart contracts is they exist within a single, seamless universe. And you know, one smart contract can call another smart contract. And there's no concept of partitions and different trust zones. And that's why, you know, despite, despite the extraordinary limitations of the, of the Ethereum uh, blockchain today, it's been immensely successful because, you know, people uh, for the main create DeFi contracts and systems, and then anybody else can extend them and plug into them. And, and the, the network effects, effects are just immense. And that's why, despite limitations, it's been so successful. Um, it would be an absolute tragedy um, if we went forward with, you know, Polkadot and Cosmos-style models where we get rid of that great advantage of smart contracts, that they all exist within this single, unified, seamless blockchain environment. So it's very important to me that on the internet computer, there's no concept of different chains and hubs that you have to send messages through. And you can see, by the way, that this concept is embedded in these legacy blockchains. 
um, because they've got synchronous smart contract models. Now, if you have, for example, Ethereum 2.0 with all these shards and these shards are running um, synchronous smart contract calls, well, you know, in the end, there's always going to have to be some kind of boilerplate that you use to send messages between shards. You break one of the most important properties of a blockchain that the small contracts exist within this seamless unified environment and there's no concept of partitions. Everything can, everything's composable, everything cool, everything else. Um, that's one of the most beautiful things that I ever saw. You know, I've been coding for 40 years and to, to, to remove that and, and, and abandon that property would be a tragedy. So, so let's get in how you are removing this because, okay, so, so you have different subnets with canisters. So how does it work on... Internet computer. How do does a smart contract or a canister call uh, another smart contract or canister on another subnet? Yeah. So is, is it? Yeah. I mean, also the internet computer is a very complex thing. But you know, at a high level, you know, the network can derive uh, very efficiently derive the location of a smart contract from its identity, mm-hmm. kind of its global position. Yeah. In, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. What shard? What not shard, but subnet. <laughs> it's on. So basically, the position of each canister is known to each other canister in whatever subnet. No, no, of course not. No, the canisters are unaware of the subnets. Yeah, okay. Smart contracts unaware. That would be a terrible yeah. mistake. Mm-hmm. That's what's happening with these legacy or these sort of even. No, you don't want shards, and you don't want parachains, and you don't want hubs. You look. It's very simple. Like you know, if you're a smart contract and I'm a smart contract, I just call your functions. And that's it. Right. There's no co- within, you know, there's no, uh, you know, the level of smart contract code. There's no, co- there's no concept of a, a, a hub or a, ch- a parachain or a shard or anything like that. It's just a seamless un- universe for code. Does it mean that if I deploy a canister, uh, I don't need to make an active decision on what subnet I go? Or kind of it will just be determined by the system or, or is it a conscious decision? Yeah. So, okay. So that's a good question. And You don't know that's correct. You don't have to decide where it goes. Complexities, of course, always happen around uh, the edges, not you know where you have very specific re- requirements. So, if you were if you were a company and you wanted to implement not a DeFi system, not you know tokenized social media, but an enterprise system, your enterprise system might compose be comprised of lots of smart contracts. And that interact with each other, and it would run faster, of course, if all those smart contracts were on the same subnetwork. So um, we are introducing means that will allow people to hint their smart contracts with a service ID, and the network will tend, if it can, of course, because it can't guarantee it. If it can, it will um, co-locate those smart contracts. But um, you know, that's just. An optimization thing, like and if you're building this great big enterprise system and out of hundreds of small contracts, it's going to run better if if they're all on the same subnetwork, or at least a lot of them are on the same subnetwork. So we're going to give people ways of achieving that, but it won't be, you know, it doesn't exist at the it, at the level of the code. Like when you're writing a smart contract, you could move them apart and it would still continue working. Does that make sense? That makes sense, but maybe let me butt in here. So basically, what's the difference then between a transaction between two canisters that are on the same subnet and two canisters that are not on the same subnet. How do they differ? There's no difference. So why do you have the subnets and uh, how how do you make it such that a canister can call another canister on a different subnet equally efficiently or nearly equally efficiently? 
Well, so there's a there's a lot to this. So I mean, I should probably just re- rewind a little bit to what a subnet is. A subnet is a blockchain, and you know, recall that the purpose of the internet computer is to achieve a blockchain singularity. So we want everything rebuilt and reimagined on blockchain. So it has to run very efficiently. So we actually use something called deterministic deterministic centralization, which means that what we call node providers, people running these special node machines, identify themselves and the governance system of the, network, of, of the internet computer is called the network nervous system, essentially combines nodes to create new subnet blockchains, which add capacity. It combines nodes observing this decentralization hierarchy, which is, first of all, node provider, naturally. I mean, let's say you created a subnet blockchain with 16 nodes, say, if all 16 nodes came from the same node provider and that node provider turned evil or went bankrupt, obviously the subnet would break. So that's no good. So the first, you know, the first, uh, the top of the decentralization hierarchy is the node provider. You want the nodes to come from different node providers. Second is data center. You know, um, it's all very well, you know, uh, combining nodes from 16 independent node providers. But if all those nodes are in the same data center and the data center blows up, well, that's not much good either, right? So then, the, so it goes node provider, data center, and then geography. Now, actually, we care a lot about this because um, there's something, for example, called an ele- electromagnetic pulse. Sounds far-fetched, but it's not. There was one, I think, in 1875. It's called the Carrington Event. Some, you have to look it up on Wikipedia. You'll get the correct date, but it's around then. And it was created by Solar Flare. And, um, you know, uh, in the hotspots where this thing, you know, hit the earth, it would wipe out data centers. In fact, it would cause an awful lot of damage to information technology generally. So you don't want all your data centers in the same geography. And by the way, I think it was, again, you can look this up, I think in 2009, a solar flare of a similar magnitude to the one that caused the Carrington event passed through Earth's orbit and we missed it by three days. So, uh, and there are other ways, you know, electromagnetic pulses could be credited. For example, you can detonate a nuclear bomb in the atmosphere and all kinds of things. So, and with climate change... Or you can introduce the infrastructure bill. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Yes, that's right. All, all kinds of things can go wrong. So we want to make sure things are, are, are geographically dispersed. Or actually, this is the fourth one, Martin. It's it's jurisdiction. So you could say, well, you know, I just want, I just want to, you know, okay, independent node providers, in a, you know, independent data centers, and the data centers are all dispersed to the four corners of Europe. Well, guess what? Um, these states are all, all members of the EU, and there's a you know, possibility they could ban blockchain. So... Actually, you don't want to do that either. You know, you, you want to make sure you've got some nodes from Amsterdam and Zurich and, you know, Munich and Budapest, say, and but you also want to get include some nodes from places like Singapore and America. So you've got this hierarchy, you know, um, node provider, data center, geography, jurisdiction. That's, that's, how, that's how nodes are combined. And by using deterministic decentralization, which does, of course, you know, make the sacrifice that the people running these machines are identified, you know, that's the sacrifice, that's the trade-off. The advantage, though, is that you can create much higher levels of security and, and, and resilience with much smaller numbers of nodes. And um, so, so first of all, these nodes, uh, independent nodes, are combined to create these subnet blockchains. Now, the, as the internet computer grows, I mean, you know, in a few years, you could see 100,000 subnets or something. How on earth, you know, you couldn't each, and these subnets are talking to each other directly. There's just no way, of course, um, that each subnet could be aware of the data on the other subnets. Impossible. So we use something called chain key cryptography. One of the, this is one of the biggest innovations in the internet computer. So for example, today, you know, when you build a DAP, 
Um, typically, you know, on a, if you're building an Ethereum DApp, of course, the uh, website, the interactive component runs on the cloud. So, you know, an Ethereum DApp, to be clear, is not fully decentralized because you run the website on the cloud. Then it will talk typically to... Don't have to. Well, it, it will, it, 99% do. Then it talks to Infura, which are um, Ethereum nodes running on Amazon Web Services run by consensus. But if you wanted to, at least, you could run your own Ethereum node. And that thing basically is a slave. People mistake Ethereum nodes and Bitcoin nodes for decentralization. They're nothing to do with decentralization. They're slaves that consume the blockchain produced by the block makers, which typically are mining pools in the case of Bitcoin and Ethereum. So they consume the blockchain um, and they keep a copy of it. And typically what you do is you interact with that, with that local copy. Now, what does that mean? It means that if you know if you have a local Bitcoin or Ethereum node, um, you can you can tr because you're running the local node, you can trust trust it, and you can interact with it to, to as a source of truth regarding the state of the blockchain. So the the challenge there is that if I am creating a DApp and I don't want to just I'm already my website's on the cloud, and if I don't want to now interact with Infura, which is just more you know it's all on Amazon Web Services and it's consensus. If I want to run my own node to be more decentralized, at least so I've got my own local source of truth. That's going to download the Ethereum state. Martin, what is it right now? What is what is it today? Uh, I run a node, uh, or uh, it's uh, probably 500 gigabytes. Okay, so you're going to download 500 gigabytes. I mean, it's probably worse than that in reality, because you're going to download all the old blocks, you're going to replay them. It's going to be awfully computationally expensive. Um, and you've got to check all the hashing and everything else. Okay, so... Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's an awful lot of data and an awful lot of computation. Probably, in fact, it would take you your node a day or two to catch up with the Ethereum chain. So by contrast... Yeah, a few more. A actually. few more. Okay, there you go. Yeah. So by contrast, um, in order to interact with an internet computer subnet blockchain, and in order to know that the subnet blockchain is correct, and in order to know that your interactions with that blockchain are correct, all you need is a 48-byte chain key. That's it. So we've gone from the need to download 500 gigabytes um, to a local node before you can start interacting with Ethereum, say, or an Ethereum chart. We've gone from that situation to one where you only have to have this 48-byte chain key. And that's chain key cryptography. It's absolutely revolutionary and changes the whole uh, meaning of, of blockchain. And that's how our shards can interact. Sorry not sure how subnets, can interact directly with each other. They don't need to have copies of each other's blocks. And they also don't need there to be trusted validators and bridges, which, of course, is completely insecure. And, and as we've just seen with, is it, what's the DeFi thing that just went wrong today? Uh, um, the Ploy Network. Ploy Network. Ploy yeah. Network, yeah. It's Poly, yeah. And they move stuff between Matic and Ethereum and... Um, Binance Smart Chain. Yeah. Polkadot or something. Yeah, and so they just... So that's on Binance. Yeah. So you don't want to do that. I mean, we don't want to introduce trusted validators and bridges. We just want to have cryptographic security. And that's why we have um, this Chenky system. But it, it makes it possible for subnets to interact with each other at, just directly without having to see each other's blocks. And absolutely, uh, what uncorks the whole thing. But you're comparing apples and oranges to a certain extent, right? So basically, it's it's kind of like if you're dabbling um, in Fura, in, in a way, it's just like having more in Fura. So more trusted third parties that you trust to have a... Well, I think I think that's currently yeah. the point that, that that you've provided cryptographic proofs that 
You don't yeah, have to exactly, trust. that you don't have to trust. So basically, it's it's basically the compa the comparison with running your own node is somewhat somewhat faulty, right? But I mean, let me get back to my core question. So basically, if I'm a canister on one chain, how do I use this? What's it called? Key. Chain key? You don't need to. No, how, no, but you how don't do need I, to. How, how do I use it to find Martin <laughs> on a different subnet? Well, but, but then hold on, just just to be absolutely clear, what the question you're asking is presupposing that you know the internet computer works in the way that these legacy blockchains do with shards and hubs and things like. Just look, I mean, I'll be absolutely frank. I think those architectures are awful and very misguided. It, it the whole advantage of smart contracts, or one of the key advantages of, of smart contracts is that they exist within um, a single, seamless, unified universe. You know, I'm a smart contract, you're a smart contract, I want to interact with you, I just call your function. There shouldn't be any concept of different subnets or chains and hubs and shards, it's ridiculous. So on the internet computer, contracts are completely unaware of the actual workings of the network. It's not, what what you're describing You see, this is a very common thing in blockchain. People look at the limitations of the cryptography involved and the architectures involved, and they extrapolate from the limitations features. People actually sometimes begin to think that the, the limit, you know, these the, the, the shortcomings become features. They're not. There's um, absolutely nothing, no advantage when you write a smart contract and you want to interact with another smart contract um, in your needing to know on what shard that other smart contract is. This is a very bad design, obviously. Like code, my contract built interact your contract and, and know nothing about the underlying network architecture. Dominic, I, I have to say it, it, it still sounds a little bit like magic and I, I'm trying to kind of bring it to concepts uh, I kind of understand uh, and I, I think it could be maybe similar. So what I do understand is that there are, for example, of course, Uh, what you describe is absolutely true. It takes, uh, well, actually it took me, I'm, I'm on my fifth day of uh, currently syncing an Ethereum node and still syncing. And uh, well, yeah, that, 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 that's how it is currently. Uh, and I understand there are uh, promising new ideas and maybe you have already achieved that uh, to completely get rid of that. Yeah, so it's one concept I know is, is uh, one concept I know are zero knowledge proofs that uh, you kind of, Yeah, make a proof that the state transition was correct. And you can maybe even do recursive zero knowledge proofs so that you in the end just have to kind of check the final proof. And that kind of gives you recursive uh, uh, or through recursion, the idea that all previous state transitions are correct. So that is one concept I could imagine how that works. Is, is that related to that? Or well, I mean, do you say it's a look, key? I mean, first of all, um, a signature is a kind of zero knowledge proof in a way, right? You're sort of Proving that you know you've got it, you hold a private key that is, you know, th that corresponds to the public key by producing a signature, and the signature is that proof. Like uh, without sharing my private key, I'm showing to you that I have one that corresponds to the public key. So um, yeah, I, I mean, optimistic roll-ups and all that kind of stuff. I think again, it's just a red herring. It's not the way to go. It's just introducing yet more complexity. I don't believe in these layer two solutions. I don't believe in optimistic roll-ups. Or any of these things, I just think that smart contracts should just run quickly and efficiently and with an unbounded capacity, right? Then maybe try to give us an idea of uh, how how this is works. So you said uh, uh, you said I don't need to have my full node. I can immediately verify from very little data uh, that all computation or kind of all state change 
was done. So, so well, how does it work? <laughs> at, a, at a high level. So, um, of course, it's all derived from threshold cryptography as usual. Um, you know, the project hasn't changed. It's just become more advanced. And, um, you know, a, a subnet blockchain, recall, um, is composed, it, it, you know, it runs on um, a set of nodes that are independent and have been assigned by the network nervous system, which is the kind of sort of um, government, government system that runs with it, governance system that runs within the internet computers protocols. So, you know, uh, a subnet um, it, uh, comprises of these nodes and the nodes have identities. And when they're put together, they run a um, setup procedure um, in concert with the network nervous system. And um, their shared public key, their chain key, which is essentially a BLS threshold key, is added to this thing called the registry by the network nervous system. And um, that means that the chain, you know, uh, uh, depending how it's configured, say a supermajority of the nodes in, in that chain can collaborate to sign something. So now, before moving on, of course, BLS is a standard, um, you know, cryptography scheme that's very well known. Um, of course, Ben Lin works at Affinity. He's one of the inventors. And, you know, though Dan Bonnie, well, he's B, the B. But, you know, alone, it's not nearly sufficient to create the chain key system. So, you know, blockchains have dynamic membership. So maybe, you need things that, let, yeah. me, let, let me Let me jump in here because there are two very important distinctions. There is, there is one verifying signatures and saying kind of, well, this was signed by at least two thirds or maybe even 80% of the key shareholders. And that I can totally understand um, that, that that can be, I mean, layered and, and so on, that, that's work. But that's different from giving you a guarantee. I mean, I mean what, what you do if you run a full node on Ethereum, you are not just verifying the signatures or verifying the proof of work. If you would only do that, well, then it would actually be quite fast. What you are actually doing is you are, you are, doing the, all the computationals, uh, the computations yourself and verifying that the computations are correct. So ask directly, uh, are you guaranteeing that the computations are correct or are you guaranteeing that a specific thresholds of signatures was reached? And that could mean that if, if 80% are compromised, they could sign a wrong state because that, those are two different uh, Yeah, sure. Two different uh, absolutely. So, I, I mean, the first thing to people to remember is there's a thing called Byzantine fault tolerance. And sometimes in blockchain, we get, you know, a little bit muddled because, um, you know, we, we, there's a lot of jargon and woolly thinking. And look, I mean, you have to base systems like this on mathematics. And if you base things on mathematics and the designs on mathematics, you can um, verify and create, you know, that, that your designs work correctly with mathematical proofs. So um, Byzantine fault tolerance, of course, refers to the model where um, you assume that some proportion of participants are faulty and um, faulty means they can behave arbitrarily and that's why they're called Byzantine. And they can also, uh, that, that includes um, colluding to break the system. So, um, you know, internet computer subnets are Byzantine fault tolerant. That is um, based upon the mathemat mathematical assumptions. Uh, there is a chain of notarization and so, so long as at any stage the subnet hasn't been taken over by faulty nodes, the signature, the notarization signature is sufficient to show that the blockchain is correct and your interactions with that blockchain are correct. So, 
you know, um, of of course, if if the a sufficient number of um, participants in the blockchain become faulty, um, they could produce um, they they could corrupt the blockchain. But that's true of any other blockchain, by the way. And if you and same with validators second, and everything I, I else, I think it's it's not. I I would say. Uh, if 99% of uh, the Ethereum miners would be kind of malicious, they could still not trick my full, no full node into accepting their block. No, because my no, full node Martin, would reject that's So um, Ethereum, no, con- no, hold on, hold on. Ethereum is controlled by three parties. Three parties. Three mi- there are three mining pools. There are three yeah, Ethereum sure. mining pools that together... I mean, there are a few more, but... No, no, hold on, hold on. There are three that together have over 51% between them. Over 51% of the hashes. Yes. Okay. And the important so, well, thing is okay. that they, even if they collude, they cannot... Well, let's just get to trick that. my full note in, No, no, that's not correct. So this is one of the biggest myths in blockchain. <laughs> that, you know, is... Okay, because we, I, so, this, so this is another great example of what happens in blockchain. That, you know, some, people want to say, well, our networks are super decentralized, so look at all these nodes... Um, look, we've got a, a, a thousand um, Bitcoin nodes running on Amazon Web Services and, and in Fura or something. This is not decentralization, okay? Um, if you control, if you're a miner and you control 51% of the hash rate, you can arbitrarily rewind the chain and rewrite it. And every single node will accept it. That's that's the way it works. That's just the way proof of, that's the way it works. So if yeah. you have 51%, yes, you can... Uh, to, to some extent, re, uh, rewrite history. What you cannot do, and I think that is still a very important uh, difference, is even if I have now 51%, I cannot kind of introduce a transaction where I, let's say, uh, spend... Right, and, and that is a big difference. Yeah, because that is a difference. Yeah, okay, it, so it just... Seems... Yeah. Sure, so let's address that. So um, you you are right that a difference here is that if if instead of just signing the state everybody replays the transactions that created the state while it is possible to double spend and arbitrarily recreate the state, at least in this completely recreated state, it won't be possible to, for example, steal my Bitcoin or Ether. That's very true. Now, that's true. We shouldn't be too pleased about that, though, because um, with something like a world computer, if the state is rewound and then rewritten, that's a catastrophe. So, um, in the case of the internet, in the case of, sorry, Ethereum, you know, if, if, um, you know, we reach one state and then those three parties that control Ethereum rewound it and, and, and rewrote it, while it's true that, you know, nobody could steal my ether, um, by signing a faulty state in which the balance had changed, and my ether wouldn't be worth anything because if you can, uh, rewind and rewrite the blockchain, It's such a catastrophe. Um, nobody would care. So just to be clear about that, so I think that's it is true that that is a technical advantage in one sense. But let's just let's just fall back to mathematics for a second because clearly, oh, well, let's well let's just stand back and see the distance mountain and answer the question: Are we ever going to produce um, an infinitely scalable blockchain? If in order to to validate it, we have to re- rerun every transaction that ever happened. The answer is no. It's not possible. I, and I, therefore, I mean, we have to abandon right, the idea but, straight away and, and look for more advanced <laughs> math, uh, okay, mathematical okay. solutions that uh, solve the problem. I, 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 I'd say two, two things to this. Uh, first of all, if I wouldn't uh, kind of, if I would just run my full node and kind of would just, well, verify the signatures in a way and take the latest state and, and see, well, it has this prof- proof of work, then it would actually 
also be much, much faster than it is today. So currently, really, this five days comes from uh, re-executing. And, and you can argue whether that is necessary at all. Uh, you can also say, well, I obviously kind of can trust the latest state. It has so much proof of work behind it. Uh, I can just take this. That, that is one thing. And, and the other thing is I still haven't ruled out the, uh, the possibility to say we might have this uh, recursive uh, snarks uh, or kind of those correctness proofs that... Um, I, I still think that's that's exciting. Yeah, I just uh, think exciting it is a nice idea, but there are there are issues there too. And look, for any kind of practical world computer to exist, you actually need the world computer to hold the data that that's involved in online services, DeFi, and so on. So, I've got a great deal of skepticism about um, the practicality. I mean, they sorry, they can be made to work, but they create a very unusable system. It just it's the same things with rollups and you know plasma and everything else. Um, but anyway, just sticking on this question of security for a moment, and I'm going to ask you a question. Um, so today, Ethereum is controlled by these three mining pools, and you're quite right. Eventually, we could, if once miners had realized those three mining pools had turned evil, they could join other mining pools. Eventually, it'd be fixed. But nonetheless, it would take quite some time, and those three mining pools that control Ethereum could arbitrarily rewrite, rewind history and rewrite it now and break everything. So... It is nonetheless the case that your, uh, you know, the state would the state would have to be calculated in in a legal way. That is, um, they could only select transactions that had really been submitted to the blockchain to create the new state. But nonetheless, the whole, you know, everything could be rewound. You could rewind by a day and and go forward, and then no 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 one no one would give it. It's over. That's why we need to get rid of proof of work as soon as possible and introduce proof of stake because then the story is different again. So that's the situation today anyways, regardless of what new systems are proposed. And I've got some big worries about those too. I've been looking at the designs occasionally. Um, now let's take the uh, internet computer. So actually the ICP ledger, for example, runs on um, the same subnet as the network nervous system. And I believe it's got about 40, 34 replica machines. And um, they're all from independent no providers um, and, you know, running an independent data centers around the world. So, you know, it's, it's not perfect yet because the network's only three months old. But, you know, essentially this you've got this decentralization hierarchy of no provider, um, data center, geography, geography and jurisdiction. In order for that to – this is a complex – so Byzantine fault tolerance is basically fails once you've got a third of the nodes being faulty. The internet computer actually uses a multi-layered architecture, so the – higher levels will fail before the state level fails without getting to deal. So essentially, in practice... The state level, you mean sub subnets? The, the blockchain right. itself is actually multi-layered. So um, first you have transaction ordering, and only when the ordering of the transactions is finalized are they actually applied to the state by the replicas, and a few things like that. So that's a complex topic. But, uh, you know, uh, internet computer blockchains have three layers. There's the random randomness layer, um, which is threshold relay, of course, which I started talking about in 2015. Then you have uh, blockchain formation uh, uses a thing called um, probabilistic slot consensus, where you know the chain is of course eventually consistent, but it's actually highly consistent compared to traditional blockchains. Um, and then you have a finalization layer, which has uh, depends on something called ne negative, it's optimistic negative attestation. Anyways, without getting into details, uh, in practice, you, you're looking at two f plus one nodes becoming faulty in order for the state to be arbitrarily modified in practice. And this is a complex topic, which I won't go into now because we'll end up in a rabbit hole. But 
So let's, I, you know, I, you know, I, I go back to, I think as I last heard, it was running 34 nodes um, on that subnet. So yeah, you know, 11, you, you're basically going to need 23 of those 34 to become malicious and collude in order to break the network nervous system and, and, and the ICP, you know, governance token ledger that, 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 that it maintains. So, you, you know, let's think about that. You know, you've got these 34 independent nodes um, run by, you know, different node providers from different independent data centers um, in different uh, geographies and different jurisdictions. What's more likely that whatever it was, 23 of these node providers are actually going to turn evil and collude to corrupt the state of the ICP ledger? or or, or that three Ethereum mining pools get hacked and rewind the chain and do some double spends. I mean, honestly, when you really get down to it, um, you know, these arguments are just pretty straightforward. I mean, look, yeah, okay, you can, we can have as many, you can have 100,000 Ethereum nodes copying the blockchain that comes out of the block makers, i.e. the mining pools. Um, it doesn't really change the security of the system the flaw in the system is that just three mining pools have over 51% of the hash rate and they can arbitrarily rewrite the chain. Um, actually, in practice, and in practice, it's much more secure doing it the way we've done it. In practice, once you look at the mathematics. I think no one's arguing for centralized mining pools, but maybe we've gone down a rabbit hole pretty deep. There's one more thing I would really like to understand about the internet uh, computer, and that's the tokenomics. Okay. So basically, uh, as you already said, the internet computer is a proof of stake model, um, and there's a token associated with it. And can you talk talk a little bit about what the token does and what I need the token for as a user and what the nodes um, need the token for and so on? Well, yeah, just 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 um, just make a quick correction. It's, it, the internet computer is not a proof of stake system. So how are, how are validators or nodes penalized if they misbehave? Well, let me just rewind to that. That that occurs. There is slashing, um, but it's not a proof of stake system. It, it, basically, it's a sort of uh, a sort of hybrid between proof of work and proof of stake. And I'll come back to that. But um, just to be clear, you know, I'm not a supporter of proof of stake systems as they exist today. Um, they always reduce to layer two applications of big tech cloud services. So if people are upset about, you know, 75% plus of Ethereum nodes running on Amazon Web Services today, you know, one thing that we should all be very concerned about, because I'm a big supporter of Ethereum, is that when we move to Ethereum 2.0, we actually end up with, you know, 95% plus of the validated nodes running on, on Amazon, um, which is obviously a single point of failure. It's much worse than the mining pools. Today, we've got three mining pools that can collude to control the Ethereum chain. Um, tomorrow, um, it could be Jeff Bezos. So, and, and that's actually the case today. If you look at, you know, um, how things like Polkadot and Cardano and Avalanche uh, hosted, um, in practice, all the nodes are on cloud, running off cloud services like DigitalOcean and Amazon and you know, all the rest of it. So I, I don't like that. And there are also um, major issues with um, uh, proof of state with respect to scaling blockchain. So, this is fairly easy to understand. If if you want a protocol, and remember, a protocol um, is a set of instructions that are run autonomously. If you want a protocol to find a way of distributing computational work 
across a network. Well, you better be sure that you've got some sense of the um, computational capacity of the nodes that are hosting your network. It's fairly trivial to see that if you don't understand, if you don't know what the computational capacity of the nodes is, or you can't rely on it, it's going to be very difficult to distribute computational work. So, um, you know, one of the problems with uh, you know proof state networks as articulated, you know, as designed today is that um, they're all running on these, you know, oftentimes uh, virtual instances shared on these, you know, on, on shared computers in Amazon Web Services data centers. You never really know what their capacity is. So, the Internet computer. Um, uh, obviously, issues um, the cloud. We want nothing to do with it. Uh, we, we think a sovereign blockchain should run on its own hardware and independent data centers, and that's indeed how the internet computer works. But the node machines themselves um, are built to standard specifications, and this is nothing proprietary. I've heard you know people say, "Oh, well, this is some kind of we're selling the nodes." No, not not it's not the case at all. Of course not. Um, you know, there's, there's there's been a generation one node spec, and there's a generation two node spec, and there'll be lots of others. It, the, the purpose is that people um, create node machines that are compatible with each other so that when you create a subnet blockchain and that subnet blockchain is under load, some node machines don't fall behind because the uh, internet computer relies on something called statistical deviance to detect um, faulty behavior. And of course, you know, the protocol doesn't care why your node is deviating. It just knows that it's producing less blocks than the other node, for example. And this this can result in it being slashed. So it's very important that, um, you know, all, all, all these nodes are running on um, very similar hardware um, so that you don't fall behind uh, if when the network's under load. And, uh, you know, this is another aspect, that, you know, the fact that these node machines use standard specifications and hardware configurations uh, specifically optimized for the task of ho- hosting a high-performance blockchain allows us to to drive um, you know much higher levels of efficiency and 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 performance. But going back to the original question, you know what what is the model? Um, you can look at it a bit like this: each one of those node machines is treated like an equal unit of stake. Okay. So in Ethereum 2.0, a unit of stake will be an Ether, for, for example, right? And if you stake one Ether, you get some fixed return. In the Internet Computer Network, um, if you like, the staking currency is the actual hardware device, the node, the node machine. And that node machine, every node machine receives equal rewards. There's no hashing competition, you know, or electricity burning competition to see, you know, if you, the, the more hashing you do, the more block rods you, you get, nothing like that. Um, the reward provided to each node machine is the same. I mean, the cat, without getting into some there are details, there can be some variations based on geography and things like that, but, but it, essentially it's the same. And you receive the rewards or your, the node machine receives the rewards if it does not statistically deviate. So that, that is it, you know, according to the um, way that statistical deviation is detected, I, you know, and, and analyzed, you know, a node machine gets paid a fixed monthly reward in real terms for, for correct functioning. And if you want to increase your revenues, then you need to create, you know, add, add more node machines to the network. So, yeah, in, in that sense, you know, it's a kind of funny thing. It's like, uh, it's a bit like proof of stake where the unit of stake is 
node machine. And just in the same way, one Ether staked on Ethereum 2.0 gets a fixed staking reward. On the Internet Computer Network, one node machine gets a fixed reward. And on the other hand, you know, this thing where the nodes are required not to statistically deviate or they can get slashed. Well, you could you could argue that some kind of proof of correct processing, it's a kind of some some kind of weird hybrid between proof of stake and proof of work. And then um, the network nervous system, of course, is more akin to proof of stake, but it doesn't have anything to do with consensus. That That's the governance system that's built into the protocol. And you participate in that by getting ICP and staking them within the network nervous system to create voting neurons. And then, you know, your neuron gets rewarded when it votes. And, you know, as you probably know, it's a form of liquid democracy and neurons can be configured to vote automatically by following other neurons on different topics and things like that. But the magic of the system, though, is that the protocol is sophisticated enough that it can upgrade the blockchain and the nodes without interrupting it. And this is actually extraordinarily complex because, um, you know, I mentioned how the subnets all run a variety of threshold cryptography schemes derived from BLS. Um, and I also mentioned that, you know, um, th- things like, you know, blockchain, blockchains are you know, have dynamic membership, like nodes come and go, you know, nodes fail, new nodes added. So there's all these things it does, like it has a non-interactive DKG, which is a huge achievement. Um, it does key resharing. Um, and all of this stuff is works in synchrony with things called catch-up packages within the protocol that allows nodes to, to, to join and leave. And through that system, it's also actually able to upgrade the nodes within the protocol without interrupting anything. So there's no need for a hard fork or anything like that. That's only like a sort of emergency fallback mechanism that, that you'd actually do, you know, the, the, the node providers would have to manually stick USB memory sticks into the back of the node machines. But that that's not, you know, the, the network runs under the control of the network nervous system that also upgrades it. And that's why it's able to evolve so quickly. I mean, and, and also why, you know, the networks, even though it's, I mean, it's, it's more than a hundred times more complex than Ethereum probably, um, but yet, you know, the downtime there hasn't really been any downtime since it's, uh, you know, it first went through Genesis launch 10th of May. And part of the reason for that is that, you know, the network nervous system has been able to push out security fixes and other kinds of bug fixes and um, in, in real time. I mean, I think it's, I mean, it's already processed hundreds of proposals that, you know, do things like create new subnets or upgrade, push upgrades, that kind of thing, tweak economic parameters. And if you if you include... Economic information coming in, the number it's processed tens of thousands of proposals already. So anyway, the network nervous system, the brain of the network, if you like, that's more akin to proof of stake, where you can just take ICP, stake them inside the network nervous system to create a voting neuron. And if you don't want to be actively involved in governance yourself, you just configure your neuron to to, to follow other neurons effectively and vote according to the activity of other neurons, and um, it's in, in sort of form of liquid democracy. Maybe one one more question to the to 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 node operators. Currently, if I uh, check the website and uh, kind of there's a link, uh, run a node, and then it redirects me to a type form, kind of to kind of basically introduce myself and in a way ask for permission to run a node. What's what's the vision on that? Should everyone be or it should become permissionless to join the network as a node, or will that be part of the governance? Or no, it is it is permissionless now. It's, I mean, the, it is permissionless now. I mean, all that's happening is the, I mean, because all of these things are completely new. I mean, the, the internet computer is a completely new kind of blockchain and it introduces a lot of new concepts and it's um, substantially more sophisticated, but there's also a lot more to learn about. So, you know, in order to uh, add nodes to the 
internet computer, you first need to get a node provider ID and that you do that by submitting a proposal. It's permissionless. Anyone can add the proposal. Um, and then, okay, you know, so, you, but, but it needs to be approved by governance or by, yeah, by the, exactly. uh, but, by the, but, but there's right. a lot of, it's a, it's a lot of fiddly stuff. You can end up with the command line, you know, working with the command line. And, and so the, what the internet computer association is doing is, um, collecting people's information and creating those proposals for them. Now, it, in the end, that, that'll be, I'm sure people will just go directly in the same way, by the way, I haven't even seen it yet, but we created internally this front end DAP that lets you interact with the network nervous system. It's like, if anyone's interested, it's nns.ic0.app. And that's actually being served straight off the internet computer blockchain. And um, you could, it allows you to interact with the network nervous system and your ICP ledger and stuff. But, but there's, some, there's, a, there's, a, there's a group called Tonic Labs. I haven't even seen it yet. I'm apparently hearing amazing things about it. And they've created an even better front-end app that lets you inter- interact with the network nervous system. So in the same way, you know, the, the Internet Computer Association is helping people. No providers get involved as, as a you know, free service. But in the end, I'm sure there'll be lots of other ways of getting involved. Just to say on that front, it is a very complex beast, the Internet Computer. So it's been adding new subnets quite slowly. Um, and it's already, I mean, it's already processing 20 blocks a second. And it's like, I don't know what it is now, 130, 140 million blocks. But, you know, we, we plan on and hope to see that, you know, scaling out to thousands of blocks a second. But, you know, I think the people involved in, in pushing these proposals and getting it up, up, upgraded and updated are going carefully because, of course, they don't want to. This is this has only been running for three months. Um, so at the moment, there's a there aren't that many nodes. There's hundreds of nodes actually already in data centers configured, ready to be added to subnets. And I think, I, I mean, I could have got this wrong, but last time I, I heard the number a few weeks ago, they're like 4,000 node providers, 4,000 node providers waiting to, 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 to install nodes and things like that. So it's, you know, it's tough because, I mean, you know, um, the Internet Computer Association and the people, are, you know, um, working under its auspices are, you know, trying to help people get involved as fast as they can. But, but, this is a very, very complex blockchain system, and it's only been running for three months. And, you know, if, if something, I mean, we did have one thing go wrong, like two weeks or no, a week after launch, where the network nervous system um, panicked, right? Because, you don't want to know, it's like it just saw some, what, what it, it saw something that it thought was a data inconsistency, it wasn't, and then just panicked and refused to do anything. And of course, the problem is if the network nervous system stops working and panics, then you can't use the network nervous system. You can't submit proposals to the network nervous system um, to push out fixes to the blockchain. Right? So you actually have to revert to what everybody else does, a, hot, a bloody hard fork. So we, we're in this situation um, like a week in, you know, um, from launch and, um, you know, the damn network nervous system has stopped working and, you know, uh, it was panicking. And so, Obviously, this I think there's been an update push so that in the future it will stop doing everything except accepting upgrades to itself <laughs> and to prevent this happening again. But anyway, so then we had to get all the node providers to basically coordinate data centers and you know and put in USB sticks into the back and like reboot the machine. Yeah, nightmare, nightmare. It's only actually when you have to do these kind of hard forks that you realize how good the network nervous system is. Like I, n- nobody ever wants to be in the position. Of of hard hard forking the the internet computer again by actually sort of like you know actually manually overwriting the software nightmare absolute absolute nightmare and then we found things like you know some of the node machines had slightly different specs and they didn't want to boot up from the USB sticks and all that kind of stuff it was a nightmare so the network nervous system is absolutely brilliant 
thing because, you know, it allows you to evolve the network structure in real time, you know, creating new subnets and things like that, inducting new nodes and node providers. And it allows you to, you know, um, push out um, updates to the nodes and things like that. And, and of course, um, you know, for the community to exert its will, I mean, one of the things that I mean, goes back to the 2017, 2016, 2017 proposal, the, the, what I used to call it the blockchain nerve system, that, you know, what do you do when you've got bad things like child porn and, and human trafficking and terrorism? You know, the, the community, the internet computer community can exert its will and, and, and um, potentially um, shut down those kind of systems through the network nerve system. So. Let, let me make one more comment on the, uh, on the um, question whether it's permissionless or not. I would say, I'm, well, I'm, I'm obviously kind of in the Ethereum camp and the proof of stake uh, fan, but I would say that is one of the arguments in a way for proof of work, in my view, because that, in my view, is truly permissionless. So kind of, well, you really need, you don't, I mean, you, you just need the hardware, you need to deliver the work, and that's all you need to do. While with something like proof of stake, you need basically to some extent, agreement from the existing community or like put in extreme. So if, if the token distribution would be like just between, between three guys, well, you would need stake from those three guys. Uh, and and I see it as, and, and, and well, with, with Ethereum, I think it was a good thing that there was, well, there was the pre-sale and then there was a f were a few year, years of, of proof of work, which actually led to a wide uh, token distribution. So now I think it's, It's kind of fair to say Ethereum is now a, a permissionless system because somehow the Ether is so distributed that anyone can get um, 32, um, 32 Ether. But uh, but like in in your system, you still kind of need the permission of the existing stakeholders to to become a node or of the existing um, uh, yeah token holders. Not quite, though. No, not quite. No, not, not quite. I mean, it, there's a separation. So I mean, you know, um, that's why the network nervous system. The controller is separated from the physical there. So, you know, if, if you're a, to, to borrow the term miner, it's, it's pretty straightforward. You know, you get these, um, you know, obviously you have to buy, buy the node machines to the required spec from somewhere, but then you, you know, install them in a, in a, in a data center and, you know, plug them in to the internet and off you go. Um, obviously if your node machines are defective in some way, if you know, you're, Bandwidth isn't good enough. You didn't use the right spec. I mean, you can get slashed, but that's obviously very easy to avoid. Just make sure they have got enough bandwidth and then they meet the spec. So that's, you know, there's, there's a deliberate separation there. So, you know, the uh, people participating in the network nervous system obviously want it to be, you know, um, if you like permissionless, because um, the security of the network, the, the, the greater the variety of no providers, the greater the security in the end. So there's no reason why anybody would want to stop a node, node provider getting involved um, unless they are obviously malicious and known to be a malicious party. Um, you know, the, the protocol, if you like, takes care of that. If somebody is running faulty nodes and that they can get slashed and that's their fault. So it's not the, that's not something that, you know, the people staking in the network nervous system and controlling these voting neurons have to worry about um, their objective. I mean, look, the, the network nervous system is designed using, you know, crypto economics And game theory is such that neuron holders will either vote or configure their neuron to follow other neurons so it votes in a way that is likely to maximize the value of the ICP locked in their neuron at the earliest um, point in the future that it can be unlocked. 
at least if they're a little bit sociopathic. So that's why if you lock up your, if you create a neuron with an eight year lockup, you know, you get, I don't know what it is. It's several times, I think, greater voting power and rewards than if you just lock it up for, for a year. Because, of course, you're voting with a long-term perspective that you're thinking, well, how do I maximize the value of the ICP locked inside this neuron over, over it, over it? Yes. And certainly, um, broad participation is, is something you're going to be seeking because the greater the number of node providers, the harder it will be to attack the network. Um, for example, by launching a legal action or through a node provider going bankrupt. So, um, these interests are aligned. The network nervous system is an open permissionless system. And certainly, um, you know, if you're a, long-term ICP holder and you want the network to succeed, um, you also want as many, many node providers involved and as many, and, and over time, um, as demand, you know, for computation grows as many nodes as possible. Something, by the way, I should just mention with respect to proof of stake, and this is an important observation. There are some security advantages of proof of stake. Um, one of the challenges with proof of work is you cannot slash people. So, um, Sybil resistance is the mechanism through which you make it difficult to participate in a network uh, that stops an attacker just creating, you know, for example, zillions of nodes and taking it over, right? So um, there are three E's of Sybil resistance, right? There's um, entry cost, existence cost, and exit penalty. So in the case of um, Bitcoin, the entry cost is buying your ASICs and configuring them um, in some suitable environment. That's your entry cost. Your existence cost is obviously managing the machines, but primarily the existence cost is electricity. Um, proof of work is really an electricity burning competition, which is why it's so environmentally unfriendly. But the third one is exit penalty. There isn't really an exit penalty. If um, you know the Chinese government took over um, you know, a vast swathe of um, Bitcoin or Ethereum mining machines and took control of the network, there'd be no way of slashing them. There'd be no way of the, for, for the good miners to, to band together you know the correct miners to band together and, and other than changing the uh, the algorithm yes. which would slash everyone it, would yes everyone, and it, yeah. whereas with proof of stake you know obviously uh, entry cost is actually obtaining the, the the cryptocurrency necessary to stake um existence cost is really the cost of capital it depends if you've got delegated staking and things like that but you know perhaps it's also running the the some kind of uh, amazon web services instance cough cough um but thirdly you have got exit penalty in the sense so if you know a sufficient number of um stakers participants in the network became malevolent you know faulty included and malicious whatever um the correct miners could band together and fork the chain and you know delete the stake of the bad guys now it'd be very disruptive of course however but to, to reap the bad guys it's like unbounded cost now it's unbounded cost to, to just wanted to, uh, to to come back maybe to part of the discussion earlier, uh, at least that's my view of it, that even like 5% or whatever, a small percentage of honest, so even if just uh, 5% would be honest, they could simply slash the 95% uh, way. So it's not enough to have 50% uh, of, of the stake to kind of create your own history. As long as you have people running full nodes, they will reject this wrong history and just slash you out. Well, of course, this is proof of stake. So this is one of the reasons proof of stakes, in my view, potentially um, superior in many respects to pr proof of work. Yeah. I guess that that was, to, to some extent, also, uh, again, uh, well, some reason to have actually full nodes and people that are don't even participating in the, in the um, uh, as, as, as validators or as, as block producers, but simply as as someone who validates uh, the transactions. Because that means even if more than 50% of the proof of stake 
participants would would kind of try to create an invalid block, they would sim simply be slashed out. Of course, it would be disruptive, but it would go on and they would lose their state. Or you'd have an incorrect network and a correct network, and essentially the incorrect network would have some break in its chain of history. And yeah, but you know the reason that's possible, of course, is because you know you have validator sets and they're adding signatures, and you can compare validator sets and um, detect who's double signed and things like that. So that's 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 an advantage you get. And um, you know, proof of work has other you know disadvantages too. You know, you you get central. But, but but maybe you you mentioned those three things. Uh, maybe let's do just to round it up uh, to now 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 now. How is it for internet computer kind of entry entry running and exit cost? Ah, well, okay. So the three is the symbol resistance for the internet computer. Well, first of all, of course, you need to acquire the node machine. That's your unit of stake. And remember, each uh, recall that each you know node machine receives an equal reward for correct operation. So that's your entry cost. Your existence cost, of course, is managing that node machine uh, and making sure that it continues to perform correctly because it doesn't get slashed. Um, you know, that's going to involve things like, you know, um, paying for hosting and internet bandwidth and uh, addressing any hardware faults that arise and so on. Um, exit penalty is the same thing. You know, uh, your node has been statistically deviating. And it doesn't just have to be dishonest behavior. It could just be that, you know, you've, this node is installed in a yeah crappy data center or it's not got the right hardware specs. So it keeps falling behind when the network's under load and not producing enough blocks. And so it's going to get slashed. Same thing. Is is there sl slashing? Because, I mean, do I need to stake? Uh, do, you, do, you, do you need to stake kind of tokens to... Well, so what you're saying is, you know, couldn't somebody take this node and then re-enter the network under another density? Right. So, um, right. yeah, you know... So how, how big is the exit cost? Well, look, I mean, f first of all, slashing can include things like accrued earnings that are paid uh, in arrears. So you can actually... You couldn't very How quick very, can yeah, you cash out? Very, yeah, very exactly. Very, very, very easily included. Sort of just a traditional proof of stake esque financial penalty. But you know, in practice, you know, when you're, you know, you would have to, you'd have to create a new node provider ID, um, unless you just sold the node to, you know, another node provider, which is probably not what you want to do. Um, there's a whole process. You have to, you know, get that proposal into the nervous system, get it adopted. There's some identity aspect to that because, as you know, it's deterministic centralization. That's how we get the replication down. So, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of overhead. You, you know, you don't want to invest. You don't want to invest a lot of time okay. Okay. acquiring but, but the machines. But it seems like the main, yeah. the main cost is the main cost is the entry is the entry cost. Yeah. Well, I mean, don't forget. It's exp I mean, the, these these nodes consume a lot of bandwidth and power and so on. And, right. and okay. I mean, nothing, nothing okay. like a cool. proof of stake network yeah, yeah, yeah. or sorry, proof of work network, of course. But yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Sure. yeah. You know, you've got all three E's. Yeah. Dominic, I had hoped to understand Definity in the Internet Computer a lot better than I currently do, uh, and I'm not quite there. So I think this we will probably have to catch up sooner than in five years. Oh, I think I, I learned a lot. Too, but I still, <laughs> I'm still very much not at the level that I wanted to be after this episode. Anyways, let me ask you one final question. I mean, so basically the Internet Computer, it's this new thing. It's kind of currently, it's not running under load. It doesn't have... A ton of applications running on it yet. So basically, if you look ahead towards, you know, the network becoming a year or two years old, what do you see as the biggest challenge, the make it or break it uh, point for the very ambitiously named internet computer? Yeah, well, look, we, we don't have to go that far. Look, um, don't, don't believe the FUD and misinformation uh, that you see on social media. I mean, there's a lot of people that are very threatened by the internet computer. They're very concerned about the huge sort of advances that has been that have been made technologically and uh it's 
already got hundreds of projects building on it. Um, its active user group growth is exploding. If you ignore this blockchain, um, uh, you do so at your peril. Uh, and it's no wonder. There is no choice. If you want to build a dApp that doesn't rely on the cloud, if you want to build a dApp that actually runs at web speed, if you want to give users a frictionless way of authenticating um, to, to your dApp, for example, by pressing the fingerprint sensor on your laptop or, or using Face ID, if you want your dApp to serve interactive content directly into browsers, secure, all of these things, there is no choice. You can't use Polkadot. You can't use Katana. You can't use Ethereum. Ethereum 2.0 won't be able to do it. And even if implemented eventually is envisaged, you have no choice. So to be absolutely clear, if you really are a block, blockchain maximalist and you really want to see a blockchain singularity, as I do, you have to build on the internet computer. It would take any other blockchain that wanted to do what we have done would need to follow a similar path. You know, you need to build a, a huge team of uh, researchers and engineers. Um, this stuff requires professional cryptographers and a lot of the areas that we work on require, you know, world-class cryptographers of which there are only a handful in the world. I mean, you're probably aware that, you know, our CTO is a guy called Jan Kamenich, um, who's one of the world's greatest cryptographers, very famous. We've got Jens Groth working here. Um, Victor Shoup, uh, who's a god of both cryptography and, and um, distributed computing. So, 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 so I get it. Difficult to build, but Dominic, biggest challenge. What's the biggest challenge? The biggest challenge, honestly, uh, was actually just building the thing, getting this far, it was very difficult. If you, to, to assemble the this kind biggest, of team. Okay, let, let me, biggest challenge ahead of you. You know, I think, look, blockchain's a very rough and tumble space and we've already seen it. We launched the thing. The price went out of control. It had a fully diluted market cap of $300 billion at one point. Then it came down and it um, went down to some silly price. Now it's going back up. You've got people, you know, trying to scam us with lawsuits and squeeze us. You've got all kinds of, Uh, blockchain projects which have shills that are threatened and they just sort of uh, just there's a tidal wave of misinformation and nonsense um, and fud out there about the internet computer none of which is true so but you know we're going to stay focused on on our mission which is 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 blockchain singularity we're going to keep on improving the um, you know technology as much as we can and we're joined in this by lots of other parties now uh, for example the things some of the most exciting things that are coming in in the next few months Uh, the service nervous system functionality. So you'll be able to take your DAP, something like OpenChat, and assign it to a service nervous system, which is basically just the, a form of network nervous system, right, which has its own uh, ledger of governance tokens. The way that'll work is that, let's say you, you created OpenChat, you'd press the button, a new service nervous system would be created, control of OpenChat would be assigned to the service nervous system, so you can only upgrade you know, OpenChat through the service nervous system and so on in the future. Um, you as a developer might get 25% of the governance tokens. The other 75% of the governance tokens will be auctioned off by the now autonomous open internet service. And so essentially, you know, the proceeds of the auction would be held within the service nervous system and you got a fully autonomous system. So that's like ICO uh, 2.0, 3.0, whatever you want to call it. That's coming soon. Um, and that's one of the reasons you've got so many people, so many, I mean, hundreds of developers building now dApps on the internet computer because they know This is coming. It's one of the most important aspects of what we're doing. Um, then after that, and this is, I guess, between four to six months away, it's very complicated, is we are adapting chain key technology so that the internet, internet computer smart contracts can directly interact with Bitcoin and Ethereum without bridges, without bridges. And we, we know why bridges are rubbish. We just seen, we discussed earlier on what happened um, with, with this uh, DeFi network and people have lost $600 million. So the internet chain key cryptography makes it possible for a smart contract on the internet computer to create a Bitcoin transaction. 
right? To give you an idea of how this, how this might work, let's say Martin here, Martin has his own Bitcoin wallet, nothing to do with the internet computer. He has a Bitcoin wallet. There is a small contract on the internet computer that implements a Bitcoin wallet. It maintains a Bitcoin balance on the Bitcoin blockchain. And I open my Bitcoin wallet, which runs on the internet computer, and I send a Bitcoin to Martin and I authenticate it using internet identity by pressing the fingerprint sensor on my MacBook Pro. So essentially we're adding smart contracts to Bitcoin. And this is possible being made possible by extending, you know, building on existing chain key work with non-interactive DKGs and Kiwi sharing, but doing it for ECDSA threshold sharing. So essentially the uh, internet computer nodes will talk directly, no bridges, no validators, because we don't believe in that kind of stuff any more than we believe in cloud and so on. The internet computer nodes will talk directly to uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum nodes and submit transactions to them. And they'll actually observe the blocks being produced by those networks. So first of all, we're going to add smart contracts to Bitcoin. Smart contracts on the internet computer will have their own, be able to maintain their own Bitcoin balances and, um, you know, send, receive, hold Bitcoin. Um, then the, we'll do the same for Ether, but we'll also, of course, add the um, uh, possibility for two-way bidirectional calling between internet computer and Ethereum smart contracts. And we think this this will be immense, absolutely immense. I mean, what is that? Almost a, coming up for a trillion dollars of liquidity on 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 Bitcoin, and all of a sudden people will be able to build smart contracts um, with all of the advantages the internet computer provides. Um, you know, they can serve interactive user interfaces securely directly into the into the browser. Users can authenticate using you know uh, internet identity, which is in it's in turn based on a kind of chain key technology, which means you know face ID, fingerprints, YubiKey, whatever you want to use, um, and you know, two second finality, all of that is going to come to um, Bitcoin and Ethereum. And um, we, in the end, see, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum as kind of DeFi settlement layers. And we think the computation is going to take place on the internet computer blockchain. That's where dApps will really run. And, uh, you know, Ethereum will become a sort of rails for DeFi settlement. Dominic, thank you so much. I have to say, I learned a lot. Uh, I was... Uh, following or am following the project since many, many years. I remember your talks in 2015. I clearly see that your work uh, and the work of your team have been has been also quite influential for Ethereum, I believe. Well, the beacon chain and things like that, yeah. For sure, for sure. Uh, I, I, I remember you running around uh, in, in Shanghai and preaching ah. BLS uh, signatures. Um, so yeah, I'm, you know, I'm... you know, money was met. I mean, Definity originally. When I, I mean, so what happened was in 2014, I was working on this thing called Pebble. I was uh, basically trying to adapt traditional, uh, you know, Byzantine fault tolerant consensus algorithms for the for the blockchain space. And then I sort of took it that I abandoned that project for a bunch of reasons. Um, but in 2015, I took this alternative path, you know, using BLS threshold signatures, and I realized I could create random numbers in a decentralized network, and that this would enable me to create fast blockchains and I realized you could, you know, all the rest of it. But originally, I mean, Divinity was conceived as Ethereum 2.0, Ethereum 3.0. That was the plan. It was never meant to be an independent project, but it became apparent that, um, you know, Ethereum just wasn't set up to do the kind of R&D um, that would be required to create the internet computer. And um, that's why it became a separate project. And, and of course, there were some differing visions. You know, our, our vision was very cryptography first and, um, and we needed to develop a lot of novel crypto so you know in some ways it's like i think they've it's kind of ironic i think in you know the internet computer is really or at least 
my interpretation of the world computer vision that I heard in 2014. And it's taken years and years. I mean, Ethereum, I think, is, um, I, I, and this is why I think it's, you know, we're at a very interesting juncture because the Ethereum of today is really the Ethereum of 2014 um, with, you know, some improvements around the edges. Um, and the question is, where does it go from here? And, and um, but, but, you know, I, I do believe the, the, the internet computer is really the world computer. That That's what I, you know, set out to implement in, in 2015. And we've probably, I mean, you know, just, you know, exerted absolutely massive intellectual and engineering firepower to get this thing built. In, in my head, it, it, it does make sense to say, well, Ethereum is the world settlement layer. And of course, that's not where you do computations. Uh, and uh, well, and that is much closer or like, yeah, that, that's much closer to uh, internet computer that uh, would might make much more sense to do computations there. I, I do think there are slightly different uh Trade-offs or kind of are, assumptions absolutely. around yeah. security, and I think we have we have uh, discussed a few. Uh, and so to me, uh, it became much clearer and kind of also clear how the two systems uh, might uh, complement each other. Well, that's right. And just going, so just, yeah, and just finishing off with the uh, you know the differences between chain key and um, traditional blockchains, where you know every single transaction is rerun to create the current state. You know, albeit you know there's still the danger the blockchain is rerouted rewound and rewritten which is very bad um at least it's not possible for somebody to actually steal your balance of ether right so i mean you know if people are concerned about that you know that's a, a very strong argument why you know ethereum can be a DeFi settlement there in my view um albeit of course um you know the internet computer is also designed to be secure mathematically secure thank you so much pleasure thanks for having me good luck with the Thank you. Project. Yeah. Thank you, Dominic. I think we'll have to have you back uh, sooner than in five years. But uh, ah. thank you so much for coming on again. Thank you. Well, you know, I love talking about blockchain. It's my favorite topic. So <laughs> thanks a lot. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode. We release new episodes every week. You can find and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have a Google Home or Alexa device, you can tell it to listen to the latest episode of the Epicenter podcast. Go to epicenter.tv slash subscribe for a full list of places where you can watch and listen. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for the newsletter so you get new episodes in your inbox as they're released. If you want to interact with us, guests, or other podcast listeners, you can follow us on Twitter. And please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps people find the show, and we're always happy to read them. So thanks so much, and we look forward to being back next week. <laughs>